Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here today. We've lost Mike Hogan, but we have our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Mike is still around. He is uh, just tied up somehow. Even though you're working from home, you can manage to have a zillion meetings. Um, but I he heard be... he uh, fell off a boat and we just couldn't <laughs> hold on. <laughs> just couldn't hold on. Well, we had to hang on. We had to, st- to stay here for the people to, uh, to talk about ordinary people. <laughs> Uh, it is a shame that we don't have Mike as our resident Gen Xer to talk about this glimpse into the early 80s, um, but maybe next week he'll come back with all his hot takes. So this week, as our rewatch series, we are talking about Ordinary People, the best picture winner from 1980. And then also in the back half of the show, we are going to have Joanna's conversation with Zoe Kravitz, the star of High Fidelity, the adaptation of the movie that um, aired on Hulu earlier this year. Um, and Joanna, I'm really looking forward to hearing that. It seems like a like talking to Zoe Kravitz seems like a good balm for everything else going on in the world right now. Yeah, you will be delighted to hear about her uh, quarantine routine. <laughs> it probably won't put mine to deep shame. Um, but before we get to that, we have, you know, a couple of things to catch up on. The movie industry remains in major pause mode. There are titles being pushed back every week, every day. Uh, still, the Academy has not had its meeting uh, that they scheduled for the end of this month to figure out what in the world to do, which I personally am dying to hear about. But there are a lot of things to watch and talk about. And um, Richard, I wanted to ask you first about maybe... Maybe one of the best movies, new movies that anyone will have a chance to see in a while. Uh, this movie, Bad Education, premiered at Toronto Film Festival last fall and was bought by HBO. And at the time, I remember people thinking like, oh, man, like it could have played great in theaters. Like it's kind of a shame. But now it feels like they really thought through and knew that the best way to see anything would be at home right now. Yeah, it seems accidentally uh, prescient, doesn't it? Yeah, this was a real standout for me at Toronto uh, last fall. And I was a little bit bummed that it uh, was going to be on TV versus have, um, you know, Oscar eligibility, because I think Hugh Jackman is really good in it. Allison Janney's really good in it. But, yeah, now it gets to live its own kind of life and will probably guarantee Hugh Jackman an Emmy, I would think, um, which we're all, you know, rooting for. Um, So, yeah, I think we should be excited about this one. One thing to note, and this is maybe self-indulgent, but the writer of the film, Mike Mikowski is a listener of this podcast. Whoa. What? Mm-hmm. Hi, Mike. <laughs> so, Mike, if you are listening still, maybe he, well, he was at least when I was reviewing the film in Toronto, maybe. Maybe he's not anymore. But, um, but yeah, it's a really interesting movie that's based on a true story about um, a town out on Long Island uh, where uh, that had, like, great, you know, test scores and the school was well-funded and everyone loved the principal. And, you know, it was just like a kind of suburban success story. And then they found out that the principal and a number of other people were embezzling millions of dollars from the school's coffers. Um, and it's, so it's kind of a con movie. It's a kind of slow build, squirmy kind of, you know, lies laid bare sort of quiet thriller, I guess. And Hugh Jackman plays this slick secretly somewhat sinister um, principle. And it's just, it's thrillingly made. And it's made by um, Corey Finley, who did a movie called Thoroughbreds that was at Sundance a few years ago that was very stylish, you know, kind of arch noir-y thing about two murderous teenage girls that was really, you know, interesting, but also felt very like, you know, standard indie kind of, yeah, like dark comedy indie thing. This is a much more sedate film, but there's so much kind of subtle style in it. And um, I really think it's, it's um, like fascinatingly made after I saw it at Toronto, I could not stop thinking about it. Well, another movie that uh, we both saw at Toronto that um, last fall that is now, I guess, only going to be seen at home is The True History of the Kelly Gang, which Richard's another one that I feel like you saw and been kind of beating the drum for for a long time since you saw it at the festival. Well, yeah. I mean, speaking of prescient, you know, it, it would make anyone who liked that movie kind of seem like they foretold 1917 with George Mackay. Oh, that's um, true. Yeah. Lead. 
in both of those movies. Um, he's been around for a while. People have, you know, I liked him in the movie Pride and Captain Fantastic. But, um, you know, if anyone was piqued by him, be, their interest was piqued by 1917. And they say, who's that guy? Like, he's, he's interesting. And why is he getting the lead of the lead role in big movies like this? I think True History of the Kelly Gang will help clarify that um, in kind of a crazy fashion. I mean, you've seen it, Katie. It's it's directed by Justin Kurzel. It's it's um, who's done Assassin's Creed. He did the Macbeth with Michael Fassbender and Marion Cotillard. Uh, and this is this one of the kind of foundational pieces of, you know, not folklore exactly, but, you know, sort of history for, um, I guess, white Australians. Um, Ned Kelly was this um, outlaw fighting against well ironically what they viewed as oppression and and um and it's a it's a fairly um oft-told story he Heath ledger did a movie about ned kelly um last you know almost 20 years ago but kurzel finds ways to do it uh, in a very kind of artsy fartsy way but and that sounds bad but it's actually pretty interesting and i think mckay is like mesmerizing in it because he really goes for broke and i think it pays off yeah, it's really it's artsy and it's it's just kind of but it's kind of like gorgeous and raw and it makes you it's one of those movies about the frontier that you watch you're like why did anyone live here what were they doing because um, it seems so impossible. Also, Essie Davis, who um, is famous from The Babadook, plays his mother, and she's got this really, like, powerful role in there. Russell Crowe is in kind of the early parts of the film as this, like, I'm trying to remember, he's like a hunter, and he takes uh, Ned Kelly under his wing, and he's, like, wearing furs and drinking a lot. Um, and then uh, my personal standout in the whole thing is Nicholas Holt, who plays kind of the the villain who started throughout the entire thing. Um, I feel like he is really leaning into this skill at playing, uh, like, a horrible person. <laughs> he does, he did it great in um, the favorite on the upcoming The Great. He plays uh, Catherine the Great's husband, Peter, where he's also kind of a, uh, a jerk. So anyway, I really love the energy he brought to to this performance. As you know, if you've seen him in only X-Men movies, I think he's got a lot, um, a lot that he's starting to show off now. Yeah. Yeah. And Charlie Hunnam is in it. Thomas and McKenzie is in it. It's a pretty stacked cast. And, uh, you know, I think it's the kind of movie that I'm not that surprised that it went on demand versus, I mean, having, I guess maybe it had a theatrical run planned, but it was probably a small one because it's a weird movie, you know, and I think I saw it at like a Toronto press and industry screening and the, the industry people in front of me were kind of grumbling throughout, like, what is this, you know? Um, but if you're looking for something that, you know, has the kind of, you know, their guns shot and people die, you know, it, it, there's a, there's a sort of thrillery action element to it, but that has an, if you're looking for that, but with an extra dimension, I think, uh, it's an interesting one to go with for sure. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing in terms of things that we were watching that I wanted to talk about, um, the finale of The Plot Against America aired on HBO last night. Uh, so you can all watch it on your various streaming devices. Um, Richard, you talked to Zoe Kazan for it a few weeks ago. And when that episode aired, I had not I'd seen like the first two episodes. You'd seen the whole thing. Um, and she talked just a lot about how she built this character of Bess Levin, who's the you know matriarch of this family and how in the book, which is written by Philip Roth and inspired very much on his childhood, that the um, she was kind of a, a classic mother, maternal mother figure who didn't have much depth. And she talked about like what she did to build that character as a person and kind of make her feel fully rounded. And I think the final episode, which I don't want to spoil too much, but um, she takes action in this way in the final episode that's completely like devastating and thoughtful and you see she has these standout scenes that you guys talked a little bit about Richard she's on the phone with this other child um I was so blown away by that finale I watched it a few weeks ago on screener and I just really want to force everyone down um and and watch it Richard has it stuck with you the way that it has with me yeah for sure I mean it that that show is a slow burn you know like a lot of David Simon things yeah exactly. Um, it takes some investment and and but then it really really delivers and I think that the scene in particular that you're referring to Katie is, I mean, I think I told Zoe, um, it, it's one of the most moving things I've seen on television in a long time. And and it really speaks to, I think, a common sort of anxiety that we have now, you know, um, and have had for a while. Um, and it feels really cathartic, even though it's a sad scene. And, and also, it just, the whole, the whole finale as an episode has that really satisfying texture of, of a show that just figured out the ending well, you know? I mean, granted, yeah. they had a novel to work based off, but, like, it just feels right, you know? 
Yeah, I mean, and it's a show, you know, it's set in this world where Lindbergh is president and, you know, basically Nazis come to America. And it's about this family, the um, the Levins, who are trying, basically trying not to do anything. Like, they're trying to wait it out. They don't want to go to Canada. They don't want to send their kid into this program that, like, sends Jewish kids out into the country. They're trying to keep their lives the same. So it's about this inaction in the face of, you know, society changing. And then in the finale, they take action in a way, you know, spurred on by Beth, Zoe, um, Kazan's character. Um, but it's not huge. It's not like taking up arms. It's not some, you know, it's like like hunters where they're hunting Nazis in America. Like, it's so small and intimate, but so important for the way that you've watched the story unfold. And that's, you know, you think about The Wire, where you'd get to the final episodes of a given season and, like, one tiny movement, you know, like, there would be one shooting death that would make the paper and be a small paragraph, like, means everything in the world if you've been watching the show. Uh, David Simon is just so good at that, about, like, weaving an entire universe uh, and then wrapping it up perfectly. Joanna, did you watch Plot Against America? I made the mistake of not remembering what it's like to watch The Wire and forgot that thing about David Simon where it's a slow burn. <laughs> and I watched the first two episodes and I was like, I have a lot of other things to watch, so I'm going to not watch this. But now that you remind me how emotionally invested I get at the end of every season of The Wire, yeah. I will, I'll be sure to pick it back up. Yeah. No, I think you just you, you think about uh, Wallace and Stringer Bell for a minute and then you're like, oh, right. That's, that's yeah, the guy who can like, do that. <laughs> Exactly. But I like every single person who watches who tries to watch the first season of The Wire is like, what was everyone talking about? <laughs> These first two episodes are there's so many characters. I'm so bored. I don't know what's going on. And then like episode four, you're snapped into place and you're like, oh, God. Yeah. So, um, I forgot. Thank you for reminding me. Um, I will. <laughs> I will finish the show. Apparently, The Wire has been a big binge watch of choice in the um, in the quarantine era. So hopefully there's a lot of people who are in the process of discovering that right now. Maybe the Emmys can, you know, make some special categories about best quarantine viewing so they can finally <laughs> give that show <laughs> the Emmys it deserves. Oh, God. Yeah. This year's Emmys are just the makeup for past mistakes Emmys. Uh, maybe the Oscars can do that, too. We'll just really uh, <laughs> get busy. Are you guys ready for Joe Exotic's best featured actor um, <laughs> acceptance speech? And then there's uh, one more coronavirus related news that's happening as Hollywood kind of figures out what the new normal is uh, that, Joanna, I believe you're going to explain to me. Yeah, so The Hollywood Reporter has this uh, piece about two showrunners, Steve Lightfoot, who did The Punisher, and uh, Paul Zebzewski. I apologize if I butcher that, who did Hellstrom. Um, and these are two um, Marvel, you know, Marvel TV showrunners. They are sort of vestigial, like sort of left over before Disney Plus and Kevin Feige took over Marvel TV. So there's like there are ways in which they were sort of hanging on to an old model of Marvel TV anyway. But um, the powers that be went ahead and executed the force majeure uh, clause of their contract, which means like due to extreme circumstances, we can terminate your contract early. And, uh, you know, the, the pieces in The Hollywood Reporter indicates that this is something that a lot of people have been bracing for in Hollywood. And we can anticipate a lot more of this as studios, you know, basically cut loose people um, that they don't want to continue to pay for, whether or not that was something that, you know, maybe it's someone that they decided to, they didn't want to work with anymore before the virus hit or just due to economic hardship. They can no longer sustain these people. But that is a, an element of contract work in Hollywood uh, that is starting to trigger, I guess. I've been kind of obsessed as, as someone who doesn't really understand how Hollywood contracts work. I'm not a lawyer or an agent or anything. Um, but just the idea of all these movies that are getting delayed and their releases are going to get shuffled and how many contracts have, like, it must open on a certain amount of screens or must involve this much promo. Like, the the, the way that the contracts are going to change is kind of mind-boggling. Right. And, I mean, this is a big... This is one of the questions that was being debated in the whole um, WGA contract negotiations so uh, you know they they did not come to an agreement on on this uh thus far and so a lot of people are a lot of writers especially i think are worried about what's going to happen so i mean you know it, the coronavirus is obviously hitting uh, all kinds of industries from all kinds of different angles this is just a new way in which hollywood you know is gonna because when you get an overall deal you're like oh that's it i'm you know it's like it's mini tenure you're like i'm set <laughs> like i i have steady income for a time in hollywood i have this thing and then you don't expect a force majeure clause to be uh triggered so here we are yeah 
Okay, let's start our uh, Essentials rewatch for this week. We dove into Ordinary People. Uh, if you're following on Twitter, you might have seen that the poll winner was, in fact, My Fair Lady, but it's not available for streaming, which is something we should have figured out before we put it on there. But anyway, I was kind of glad to watch Ordinary People. I had seen it before. Like, I knew that I had seen it and knew that it involved Mary Tyler Moore and therapy and a dead kid. And that was honestly all I could remember from it. So it was basically like seeing it for the first time. Um, and it's a movie that I think, like, holds up really well in many ways and then kind of terribly in one specific way. Um, but I overall, like, I enjoyed it in a way that, like, I think a lot of times if you watch, like, very serious dramas from the 80s, sometimes they can feel absurd or irrelevant. Um, but this one didn't feel irrelevant at all. I wonder if you guys felt the same way. Yeah, I mean, I think it was at the time kind of hailed as a breakthrough or a revolution in the way that it talked about an extreme form of teen angst, um, grief, trauma, you know, the family dynamic. I think it was, it was verite for the time, you know, you know, therapy, oh, therapy in a big way, you know. Um, And I think, you know, it's also, it is a product of its time in terms of it's the way it talks about gender to some extent, also the whole Timothy Hutton of it all. Um, But yeah, I think it's, I, I think that I'm glad that, weirdly glad that My Fair Lady was not on any streaming because I think Ordinary People is a much more interesting kind of movie for our purposes in terms of what it did at the Oscars and how it kind of functioned in the careers of pretty much everyone involved um, Mm -hmm. from Robert Redford, the director down to, you know, a star making performance by Elizabeth McGovern, who would then kind of do a few more things and then disappear until Downton Abbey. It made Pachelbel's canon uh, famous again or for the first time. (laughs) Yeah. That was, that blew my mind. That was a fun fact about ordinary people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I and I think, you know, I had seen it when I was a kid. My dad brought it home from the college media library where he taught. And I thought it was like the most profound thing ever. Um, and now I see its cracks, but I think it's still really well done. And I think for me, it is centered by an extraordinary performance by Mary Tyler Moore, um, which was such a, a break from style for her. Um, and it was it's just like I think I think she's incredible in it. Um, yeah, it's funny. This is the second time Richard and I have talked about Mary Tyler Moore this week because we talked about her on Still Watching (laughs) This is America um, because the Mary Tyler Moore show is featured over there. But what struck me when I was watching this uh, for the first time uh, the other night is how many TV actors, you know, Judd Hirsch and Mary Tyler Moore were TV actors. And um, I was reading um, Entertainment Weekly has this great oral history uh, done by the great Sarah Vilkomersen about um, the making of and Robert Redford said that he like he was in his house in Malibu and he saw Mary Tyler Moore like walking down the beach like with her sweater wrapped around her looking like sad and lonely and he was like aha um and and then like Judd Hirsch she knew from Taxi and so it's just funny like it was such a different time in terms of like TV actors going to movies didn't really happen even the way they did in the late 80s and 90s. You know what I mean? It's just, it's a rare thing. And so I I almost wonder if he's trying to put that like familiarity, like a family you're familiar with. You see them in your living rooms and here they are, even though Timothy Hutton is like a newcomer, but they, they plucked him from TV too. He was like in a TV movie that they saw and that's why they cast him. So I just thought that was a really interesting thing to think about. Like this film, what it has going for it is a movie star director, something that Mike Hogan likes to talk about a lot. And these very familiar, but not movie star faces, these like TV family faces, um, which um, I think is really, really interesting. And I mean, I we have plenty of fun facts about Ordinary People, a, a distinctly unfun movie. But um, the fact that it was Redford's plan to get the best performance out of Timothy Hutton, he told everyone in the cast to ignore him and not talk to him so that he felt isolated and <laughs> losing his wow. mind. And he was like, he was 19, I think, when he made this. And so he was just like insecure. And then his father died. His father who was a, a somewhat famous actor. Jim Hutton died a couple months before filming this. And so like the, just all these emotional pressures on Timothy Hutton sort of resulted in this, uh, you know, pretty incredible performance. Yeah, the um, the Mary Tyler Moore performance was the, you know, the thing that I think 
might be its biggest legacy. Like, I guess Robert Redford's career is a whole other thing we can talk about as well. But you kind of, you know, think of it as this like totemic moment in the career of this woman who was so important to culture. And as I start watching it, you know, watching it as a mom who has two sons, you know, you're watching her like suffering greatly, you know, before the, the film begins. Her older son has died in a boating accident. Timothy Hutton is the younger son who has committed, uh, attempted suicide before the film begins. And also the way this movie depicts like suicidal ideation, like you can just imagine how pe- people would lose their minds if you made it made a movie like this right now for how kind of irresponsible it is about suicide. But that's another product of its time. Um, but anyway, so I'm watching the movie and watching Mary Tyler Moore and she's like, she's buttoned up. She doesn't want to talk to anybody. She's trying to get back to normal life. She doesn't want to like talk about all the things that are going wrong. And I have felt such immense sympathy for her. Um, and I think you're supposed to. I think the movie recognizes that everyone in this family is hurting. Um, but I think as the film goes on, it makes her more of the bad guy the way that Timothy Hutton's character thinks that she is. Um, and then the way that the film ends, which is where I kind of jolted out of really appreciating appreciating it, where basically she is the villain who is vanquished by her husband and her son and kind of told that she needs to get her shit together and then is like sent off to Houston, which is depicted as like the worst place in the world anyone could land, like having to live on a golf course. Um, and I was so frustrated with the way that it ended there. Like she, Mary Tyler is giving so much of this performance. There's so many scenes that you feel it kind of crossing over into seeing what she's thinking and then it just has to end with Donald Sutherland and Timothy Hutton like having their big emotional catharsis that she's completely let out of um, and I I wish that it hadn't it could have had one more scene and I think nailed it way better for me yeah and I think that that ending which you know feels like it caves to the pressures of like male centric storytelling in a yeah. way that the rest of the movie isn't um, as concerned with that. It's frustrating because I think that Moore is doing so many subtle things that Donald Sutherland, who's great, is not really, you know, he's playing something a bit more um, with fewer facets, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but Moore is doing this really complicated thing. And I think that something that I, you know, adjacent to my own upbringing, um, just this this brittle social wasp character um, who is, you know, yet, you know, saying hi to friends and saying, oh, it gets crazier every year at the fancy shopping mall, you know, mm-hmm. the fancy suburban shopping mall uh, and and like, you know, doing the golf and, and being at the, the, the like the, the holiday parties or whatever. Like, but then at home, you know, the, the, the minute she leaves those kind of public spaces, the temperature drops 20 degrees, you know, mm-hmm. um, I just think that's so well calibrated. And if she was going to be the villain at the end, which she kind of is turned into, a lazier actress could have played that from the get go, you know. And yeah. um, instead, she she f- really finds the human being there, um, and then I think is kind of betrayed by the movie. Yeah. Yeah, and you like there's the scene where um, Donald Sutherland kind of asks her about why the morning of their son's funeral, why she was like talking to him about what he should wear, and he's seeing mm-hmm. it as her like caring more about out- external appearances than um, what's going on in their family. And I kind of listen to that. I'm like, she like this is all she has. Like she has lost all control in her life. She can help her husband figure out what to wear to the funeral, and that's a choice she can make on the worst day of her life. And I kind of thought that's what the scene got to me when she comes and hugs him. But then again, it doesn't like follow through. It it, it doesn't make it clear that the movie believes that she has her motivations for doing that but that the all the external facing stuff is a problem to be solved um and what what i think is interesting is like while i completely agree with you i think it's interesting that redford has said like he could he had a hard time getting this movie made because it he sees her character as the main character and the and the character he's mostly interested in and interesting um, and that studios didn't want to make a movie that had a, a like a dark and complicated woman at the center of it and that he had a really really hard time getting it made and so i think at the time um he thought he was doing uh something very revolutionary with the character even existing in the first place sure like this mother character and i think you're right that like and then the one step beyond that to a place where we are now is and finding sympathy for her, which ultimately yeah. the movie doesn't quite fully get there. But I think it's it's interesting to consider that in 1980, especially Mary Tyler Moore, who is like this extremely sunny TV figure for decades um, in this role is like, you know, it's like when Jen Aniston like first started doing these various things, trying to like kind of bury Rachel. Um, yeah, that, that's what this feels like to me, you know. 
Yeah, when you talk about it, him thinking of her as being the main character, I wonder if that was part of their argument for campaigning Timothy Hutton as a supporting actor at the Oscars, which is just spectacular category fraud. He is like so beyond the main character of this movie. Um, but it worked. It's always it always finds a way to work. <laughs> he won that Oscar. Yeah, I imagine Je- I imagine Judd Hirsch, who was also nominated in supporting actor, being like, "Oh, come on!" <laughs> like, <laughs> and then Donald I'm in, Sutherland like, didn't I'm even in, like, get five nominated. Scenes and, yeah, Sutherland not getting nominated was long held. As one of the great snubs of of that decade, yeah, um, it's a big you know, snub. I think that people have. Well, he's also never been nominated, um, and you think of all the stuff he's done, <sighs> oh. like that would that would be one that he could get nominated for. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it it slipped through his fingers. It, the movie did win; it won picture, director, screenplay, and supporting actor. Yeah, right. So that's 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 a that's as close to a sweep as as the Oscars get um, most of the time. Something yeah. that I found interesting, I decided to like watch Timothy Hutton's speech because he was twenty. You know, he was twenty when he wins, and I was like interested in sort of what that looked like. And um, he uh, also, you can see uh, his sister, former VF employee Punch Hutton, uh, in the in the shot of yeah. his win. But Mary Tyler Moore and Jack Lemmon presented the award, and Jack Lemmon was nominated also that year. So I just thought it was interesting that they had like nominees Weird. presenting the awards. Um, but so that meant Mary Tyler Moore was up there, you know, when he won, which was was pretty lovely. And, so they knew um, he was going to win, basically. I mean, I guess. But like, I don't know why, you know, like I, I would guess if Mary Tyler Moore was up there, I would guess that that would be why. But then Jack Lemmon's up there. I'm like, maybe at that time they, it was just standard for them to have like nominees present the award, which I think is very awkward. Yeah. Um, and this is this is such a controversial year, isn't it? Because Ordinary People wins and I think it's a great film. But this is the year that like Raging bull is around and and like people for you know like Robert De Niro wins for Raging Bull but people for years is like oh one of the biggest uh you know travesties of the Oscars ever was ordinary people winning over Raging Bull and I'm like I don't know I, yeah. I don't know that I agree with that you know well it's it's interesting so much because of what it means for Redford's career like it establishes Redford as like one of the great like actors turned directors and he never quite has that same level of Oscar success again. Um, And also he never really makes a movie like this again, which is so strange to me. Like so many of his other movies are like big historical efforts. And I mean, I think Quiz Show is probably his uh, next biggest Oscar success and probably his next most successful movie. I've never seen some of his, you know, I've never seen Legend of Bagger Vance. Um, But it's so odd that he kind of came out of the gate with this really intimate personal drama and never made anything like it again. Yeah, he went right for the kind of big, sweeping, historical, you know, Oscar-winning epic thing, um, which is weird because he had already done that. I think the closest analog I can think of in his directing career to this is um, The Horse Whisperer, with, uh, mm-hmm. which is about grief as well. And it's about a wealthy family and is also based on a novel. And I think that movie gets a bad rap. I think it's really a really really good movie. Um, also an early uh, Scarlett Johansson and Kate Bosworth uh, movie. Kate Bosworth. Um, but, you know, I, I think that, like, he – it's so interesting looking at this movie and everything that Redford directed since and kind of thinking about what was happening parallel to this narrative for him, which is that he, Sundance was getting started. Mm-hmm. And to be this champion of, like, small independent cinema and then everything he made as a filmmaker was A River Runs Through It and, you know, all this big kind of – very studio feeling stuff. Um, so ordinary people kind of represented, I think, this weird crux point where like he could have kept with this intimate small movies and 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 done that, but instead he he went the other direction, but he still had his hand in the small movies because he was doing Sundance. Yeah, and Ordinary People now is like is a small movie. Like studios don't make movies like ordinary people anymore. Um I guess like I mean Marriage Story being out last year is the closest comparison, but you know, like if that's Netflix, it's different. So yeah, he he made the big expensive studio movies while they still existed and um and the intimate family studio drama while it still existed. Did you guys, like me, watch this movie and wonder if Judd Hirsch feels like Robin Williams owes him a little bit of his Oscar? (laughs) An Oscar. (laughs) Just part of his Oscar. (laughs) I haven't seen Good Will Hunting in a long time, but definitely you watch those therapy scenes. um, And that's that was the first thing I thought of. There's an it's not your fault scene. Like, yeah, it's pretty, pretty outrageous. Yeah. Um, not that not to take anything away from Robin Williams. Uh, maybe maybe it's more like Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Oh, part of their screenwriting. Oscar <laughs> to Robert Redford. But Judd Hirsch is so well, yeah. good. At, like, he's, oh, he's such great. a good 
therapist figure where he's just sitting there and he's like a little bit skeptical and he's kind of waiting for Timothy Hutton to come to things himself. And then when Donald Sutherland shows up, it's the same thing. And he's like warm and welcoming, but like not doing any of the work for you. I mean, maybe you want to just like sit down and have him be my therapist. He's so good. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it, it, and I think that, you know, like you said, Joanna, the way that this movie depicts talk therapy without any kind of, I mean, I guess you have the scene later where Donald Sutherland is like, I don't believe in this as a panacea for everyone. And Judd Hirsch is like, neither do I, you know, <laughs> but for the most part, it, it presents a pretty like uncritical, unsnarky, un ironic view of of uh, a medical practice that is oftentimes kind of you know how many jokes about my shrink are there or you know like it, it's just such a kind of um, useful but also often kind of maligned practice and i think this movie gets at something really essential about the power of it um which you know is just having 50 minutes uninterrupted to talk and what that provokes out of you um can be you know super useful yeah, so I, you know, and it's a shame because I think that, like, going back to the Oscars of it, like, I don't know that Hutton would have won in lead actor, but I think Hirsch could have won in supporting had he not had the competition. And I think that would have been a nice um, cap off to a great performance. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Yeah, it's hard um, to imagine beating Robert De Niro in Raging Bull. It's true. It's true. Um, I wanted to shout out Elizabeth McGovern as well. Yeah. Uh, who doesn't have like a huge role in this, but she's also like, I think 18 or 19. I think she delayed going to Juilliard so that she could be in this movie. Um, and uh, she's such a baby and she's, you know, she doesn't have a ton to do. But... And she didn't have the weird half bridge accent. <laughs> yeah, the Downton Abbey accent. Um, did you also notice um, another uh, soon to be somewhat famous person? noted Hollywood conservative Adam Baldwin. I did uh, notice plays, Adam Baldwin. <laughs> <laughs> plays the jerky friend of uh, Timothy Hutton, of Con oh. Connie. Um, it's funny. Uh, I was I yeah. was watching I was watching the movie and then I was like, who else is in this? And I looked it up and I was like, wait, where's Adam Baldwin in this? And I Google searched it and I had already seen scenes with him in it and hadn't recognized him because he's just, his hair is, is There's incredible. There's tremendous hair going it's on. It's very good. Um, Elizabeth McGovern is so cute. and But she's also got these really good moments, like the this really moving scene and I think like something really to Redford's credit that he had lets these emotions play out in these complex ways where they're at the restaurant and like he's kind of like un unloading on her about his feelings about suicide for the first time and they get interrupted by the crowd of like the jerky boys walking in and like she reacts to it in this way that she regrets and you see kind of her torment over it where she like knows she did the wrong thing but she didn't really do anything wrong but it ruined the moment um I really liked the way that all played out same. Yeah. And um, Dina Manoff, who plays his like friend, Karen, uh, who I think a lot of people know from Greece, but I know from the TV show Empty Nest, which I watched a lot as a kid for some reason. Uh, I thought she was really, really good. She only has one scene. But that's like that's one of those like that could be almost like a supporting actress scene. You know what I mean? This like one diner scene where she just gets to be like nervy and uncomfortable and like um, she's she's incredibly uh, strong in that scene, I think. So Wow. And she is the daughter of Lee Grant, which I did not know, um, recently uh, featured in Vanity Fair. There we go. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> uh, any last thoughts on Ordinary People? Do you guys uh, do you guys feel like this is a, a good mark on Oscar history? Bad mark? Well, I feel like we should talk a little bit more about the Oscariness of it. Um, you know, I think one interesting detail is Alvin Sargent, who wrote the screenplay. He won um, he won the Oscar for it. He had won a couple years prior for Julia. Um, he also, at the ripe old age of 79, I think, wrote Spider-Man 2, the Sam Raimi film. Um, <laughs> Did not know that. <laughs> and has writing credit on the first Spider-Man, has writing credit on Amazing Spider-Man, which was the kind of, you know, Andrew Garfield reboot. Fascinating career that he had. He won uh, his second Oscar for this, I think, well-deserved in adapted screenplay. But, you know, I think the big controversy at the time was that it won Best Picture, beating Scorsese's Raging Bull and David Lynch's The Elephant Man, uh, as well as, uh, you know, Tess, the Roman Polanski film. And um, well, I forget what the, the fifth Cole was. Miner's but, daughter. Um, oh, Cole Miner's daughter. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, so, so, so everyone at the time was like, well, no one will remember ordinary people. The Elephant Man is going to, you know, stand the test of time. Raging Bull. I think they were right about Raging Bull, maybe less so Elephant Man. Um, but, you know, this does not reek of outrage best picture winner you know i mean it's an awfully small movie to have won by today's standards i guess to some extent but like you know i think for me though the the really um interesting oscar thing is the mary tyler moore 
loss because she was just victim of a classic narrative we still see played out is that she won the Golden Globe for Best Actress Drama, but then Sissy Spacek won for Best Actress Comedy or Musical, and then Spacek won uh, in the, um, you know, in the final round, um, which... Uh, as a kid, I remember feeling a really intense, bitter sense of injustice that Mary Tyler Moore hadn't won for this. Um, but uh, given the strength of SpaceX performance in that uh, in Coal Miner's Daughter and her career since, like, you got to give it to her, I guess. But um, I've I never know. seen Coal Miner's like Daughter. One, have you? Yes, I love it. Yeah, yeah, long time ago. Oh, yeah, I yeah. love it. She's so good. I mean, it's. I mean, like, Mary. It's tough. It's actually a tough call for me. It's not one of those musical bio. Well, I d- I did see it when I was pretty young, but it's like it's not one of those musical biopics that like you're just sort of like, oh, okay. They showed she showed up and she lip synced some songs like because Loretta Lynn had such a tough, um, you know, upbringing in life uh, and complicated relationship with her husband, um, played by young Tommy Lee Jones. Like, that that movie really stuck with me for some reason, and I'm not even a country music fan, so, like, I, I don't know. I, I can't... I think you're right, but at the same time, like, I wouldn't want to take Sissy Spacek's Oscar away from her, either, so it's tough. Yeah. Well, and, like, like Sissy Spacek had another chance, and Mary Tyler Moore didn't really, so, like, yeah. if you do that, this is where, this is something our, our friend Joe Reed likes to do, is where you do alternate Oscar histories. You're like, okay, so if Mary Tyler Moore wins, does Sissy Spacek then later win for In the Bedroom, and then what happens? And um, you kind of watch the, the domino effect from there. Right, and what does my, Mary Tyler Moore get to do after that yeah. if, she, you know, if she wins? Um, I think I think you're right uh, about the... I think the reason why Ordinary People was treated as one of those, like, shouldn't have won uh, sort of movies for so long was because Scorsese didn't have... He didn't have a directing Oscar until The Departed, right? That was, like, the big narrative. Yeah, yeah. And so I think... With apologies to any of them listening, the film bros for a really long time were like, Scorsese should have an Oscar. Like, um, what the heck? And I think Ordinary People was seen as like a real moment where he was denied. But I I wouldn't take Robert Redford's Oscar with him either. So I don't know. Yeah. But then what if he doesn't win and then he wins for quiz? <laughs> what did Quiz Show lose to? What was that year? <laughs> Uh, this Quiz- wasn't that Forrest Gump? Uh, yeah, so that yeah, that's the Forrest Gump year. So then what? Yeah, it's uh, uh, fascinating. What 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 could have changed? Quisha won <laughs> zero of the Oscars it was nominated for. The the movie of that you know, like I've seen The Great Santini, I've seen Private Benjamin. Um, what a what a great role for Goldie Hawn who was nominated for that. Um, I've seen uh, Coal Miner's Daughter. The movie that like made the splash that year that I haven't seen is Melvin and Howard, which won Mary Steenburgen uh, Supporting Actress Award. So A Jonathan Demme movie. Yeah. So um, Right? Yeah. 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 No, I listen. Our uh, our friends on the Blank Check podcast covered that as their Demi miniseries, and their episode of Melvin and Howard made it sound pretty terrific. Um, yeah. And I, and I don't know it. that, you know, Mary Steenburgen is an actor I've known about my entire life, but I don't know that part of her um, of her origin story. So that seems like a good a good rewatch. The other fun trivia fact of this Oscar, I believe, is that that the uh, makeup Oscar uh, was created after this year because the makeup artist on The Elephant Man didn't get recognized. And they're like, we should make a, an Oscar just for the makeup artist because of his incredible work on The Elephant Man. So Yeah, I and according according to Wikipedia, that year Empire Strikes Back won a special, special achievement award for visual effects because the visual effects category didn't exist yet either. Mm. So yeah, a lot of the crafts categories really came into their own uh, into, in the 80s. Excellent. Excellent work. Um, something that, um, I mean, I know we're taking this tour through um, Oscar history and it's really fun. Um, I took this quiz recently, or a quiz. It's a list of all the Best Picture winners. And it was sort of like your score was how many you've seen before the year you were born and how many you've seen the year after you were born. And I only was missing two from the year after I was born. And one of them was Ordinary People. So now I'm only missing one. So Wow. I don't remember what that one is, but um, I might make you guys take that quiz and see sort of like where we are. About best uh, pic- best picture winners we haven't seen after we were born? Yeah. Well, I kept trying to put Unforgiven on the poll and no one ever voted oh, for yeah, it. Oh, so. yeah. That's my other one. Yep. <laughs> that that's my, my other comfort. one. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what we can pull off. Um, all right. Well, this is fun. We we should do more rewatches on Oscar years that we have a little bit more context for since it's fun to talk about like the who was nominated for what in the narratives. So uh, we'll get into that as our rewatch series continues. 
so I got a chance to talk to Zoe Kravitz, who is sort of on hiatus from shooting the Batman, uh, you know, just sitting around trying to keep in Catwoman shape. This is this is my question for her. I was like, do you have to keep up your Catwoman workout routine in quarantine? And she said yes, which I was like, that's oh, God. what a bummer. Um, but anyway, I mean, she also talked to me about uh, Big Little Lies, sort of the, the door they left open at the end of season two for season three. We talked mostly, though, about High Fidelity, which is a show I absolutely loved on Hulu, an adaptation of the Nick Hornby book. Uh, which was turned into a film with John Cusack and then they sort of uh, gender flipped the leading role and the fun thing about Zoe Kravitz is she's like she's a huge fan of the book and a huge fan of the film uh, not just because her mom Lisa Bonet is in the uh, John Cusack film but she's just a huge fan of those properties those original properties so she was incredibly protective of the book and the original film when they were making this and I think it's one of the reasons she's also an executive producer uh, and she talks about sort of her involvement her level of involvement but I think it's one of the reasons why this versus so many other remake reboots gender flip whatever is so successful because I think it you see so many remakes that don't understand what made the original thing special and um, I think they really, really got it right with this one. So I was a, I was a big fan of High Fidelity. Uh, they left the door open on that one for season two. So I'm, you know, I'm really hoping they get a season two. And uh, let's hear from Zoe Kravitz. So I wanted to start by asking you, I, I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of the book High Fidelity, huge fan of the film as well. I loved this version of the story. I know that, you know, the creators approach you, you were top of their sort of dream list to play Rob, but when they approached you to star in it, did they also come with an offer of you being executive producer or is that something you decided you wanted to do? I can't remember exactly, but I think when, you know, when my agent called me, they, he said that that would probably be something I could be, you know, it was really early and so I could be involved, you know, kind of from the ground up. Being an executive producer on a project, you know, being being a star slash executive producer on a project means different things to different people. What did what did it mean to you? What did you want your role to be? Um, <laughs> it meant I was probably very annoying <laughs> to a lot of people. <laughs> um, part of me thinks that um, you know when an actor or maybe even more specifically an actress gets asked to be a, pro- a producer, executive producer. There's maybe even a slight hope or uh, that that it almost means that they'll do, you know, nothing. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) I got way I got way involved. And I think everyone was a little bit surprised by how involved I got. Um, I was involved in the casting. I went to I went to the castings. I was in the writer's room. I was, um, you know, making playlists and putting songs in. And, um, you know, I was, you know, in the edit. I, I was I was very, very involved all the way to, um, you know, posters and promotion and things like that. Was that degree of involvement at all inspired by your co-stars on Big Little Lies and and their level of involvement in that show? I mean, I'm definitely incredibly inspired by Nicole and Reese. I mean, Reese is an absolute powerhouse. And I think the way that she's absolutely unapologetic as a producer, you know, she knows her place. She knows that she deserves to be there. And her opinion matters and she's a fighter. Um, I think seeing that really inspired me to know that I had the right to to be as involved as I wanted to be. And the reason that I wanted to be so involved is because I I love this property. I have a lot of love and respect for the for the book and, and also for the film. And um, it felt really important to me that this story felt honest and I and I meant and I needed that in every avenue of the show. So that required me to to be on every phone call and every notes call. You know, I needed to. I had this very specific thing in my mind about what I wanted this to be, and I and I think I realized early on the only way to help realize that was to was to be ruthlessly involved. You also you you co-wrote uh, an episode of the season, one of my favorite episodes of the season, episode five, Uptown. Oh, thanks. Um, 
can you can you talk about that's that's the one so i watched i watched the whole season through and then i went back and sort of cherry picked episodes to rewatch and then i sort of wound up rewatching the whole thing again but i immediately went back to episode five because i love your chemistry with jake so much i love parker posey so much it's just like an incredible little bottle episode almost can you talk about your process of of <laughs> making that episode putting that together I remember the first time um, I read the book and also when I was rereading it, I'm reading this moment where Rob doesn't take the records. And I, I think I literally threw the book down. I was so frustrated <laughs> and I thought it was such a genius situation that Nick had, you know, put his protagonist in and it explained so much about who this person was. And it was just, it was so complex and so fun. And um, again, kind of got this like, really deep reaction for me. So I thought um, it would be such a, a great thing to put in the show. And um, they did shoot it for the film as well. And um, it, it ended up being cut out. But um, so that was also really something that was exciting to me, something that I loved so much from the book that wasn't in the film that we got to that we got to work with. And um, and Parker Posey was always who he wrote that role for. Like we couldn't believe we got her. That was so cool. I do love how little is changed about Rob um, down to some of the pieces of wardrobe you wear that I like that John Cusack wore in the original film. We knew that we were going to be compared to the movie. Um, you kind of can't avoid that when you when you remake something. So we wanted to embrace that. You know, we wanted to put in a bunch of Easter eggs for people who love the film and um, and I'm a huge fan of the film. So it was, you know, there were moments where we would be writing a scene and I was like, oh, this is similar to that same moment in the in the movie. And instead of trying to stray away from that, it was more fun to just lean into it. I know you guys teed up um, future seasons after this one. Um, have you have you heard anything about whether or not you're going to get another season? We don't know yet. Okay. It's kill. It's killing me. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's on hold. Um, I know. But in your... In your ideal world, you know, you've got this great Debbie Harry cameo in season one. Do you have any, would you want uh, other other musician cameos in the future? Do you have like a, a wish list, a dream list? Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about Patti Smith being really cool. I also think Fiona Apple would be amazing. There's a huge oh. list of um, just, you know, iconic women that I would love to have them come give advice to Rob over the years. That would be amazing. Are you listening to Fiona Apple's new album? Of course, like on repeat. It was, I was waiting for it to come out for so long, and it was like Christmas. Oh my god! <laughs> I know the like one spark of joy in this weird quarantine time is we get a new Fiona Apple album. She so, she came yeah. through. She came through for all of us. So you you mentioned being involved in in casting. I'm I'm fascinated by the casting of uh, Jake Lacey, who is like the world's uh, best supportive boyfriend of interesting female characters that seems to be like the role that he is best suited for um (laughs) what were you what were you looking for in that role and how does how does jake lacy fulfill it it's funny because i haven't really watched the office i didn't watch a lot of girls i saw obvious child after the fact so i didn't i wasn't familiar with him kind of reprising this role of like you know people are saying he's kind of you know the boy the nice boyfriend guy um, but we, you know, we wanted someone who at first seemed kind of harmless, um, and like they wouldn't be a real contender. And then immediate, you know, the second you get to know that person, you know, your heart just melts, you know, and you're rooting for these two people. Um, but someone that she could dismiss quickly early on. And, you know, Jake is, um, he can have this kind of like sweet white bread thing to him but then once you like the the minute he starts talking he's just he's so witty and smart and fast and soulful and so um we were really excited to to give him space to um to go a little bit you know deeper than he I think he's been able to do in a lot of shows where he kind of plays the boyfriend you know I think we hint at a lot of um complications in his past there's this moment in episode seven where he talks about like trying for years to cut this chaos out of his life and you get the feeling that he's kind of you know he's maybe moved to new york running away from something he's trying to change his life a little bit and um and i would love to see more of that in the future if we continue with clyde 
you fully capture the the banter of like people who work in a retail shop uh especially people who work in a retail shop that doesn't necessarily get a lot of foot traffic all the time uh did you have any was there any ad-libbing involved in the in the coworker banter there's a little bit of ad-libbing for sure i mean divine is so great at ad-libbing and she always adds funny little bits and pieces but you know, this is a show really about these kinds of conversations. So for the most part, they were written, but, um, but there were definitely, especially as time went on and we all we kind of got like this shorthand with each other there, you know, all those little like, what's up babies, which is a really funny thing that divine <laughs> always does. And like the little, like kind of just shorthands like that, um, kind of get added in as we go. But you know, the conversations are, are all scripted, the topics, etc. So many, so many uh, reboots and remakes. I feel like, um, I mean, I don't think it's controversial to say, like, miss miss the mark of of what we loved about the original. I, I, you know, I responded really well to this, but I think most people responded really well to this season of High Fidelity. What do you think made for a successful uh, re- remake here? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you a lot, and I think a lot of the times. Um you know, you switch the gender just, just to switch the gender, gender, and it becomes kind of like a, like a gimmick, you know, what I think, um, we were able to kind of update the story in a really interesting way. One part of that is, okay, what does this world look like of record stores and stuff when we have, you know, the internet and Shazam and Spotify and all of that. And, you know, the idea of someone that's kind of like hanging on to dear life to this analog world. Um, and then also, you know, shifting from a, a male to a female with Rob. Um, but still really, like I was saying earlier about my conversations with Nick Hornby, still really keeping the, the energy and the tone of the book. You know, I've always thought that High Fidelity was like the most punk rock romantic comedy, you know. And if you soften anything <laughs> too much, especially because now we're dealing with a, with a woman. So um, if you make her softer or try to make her more likable or, you know, too likable, then you lose the heart of what this story is about. You know, this is about a person who, you know, is looking in the wrong places for the answers and finally realizes, Oh, maybe I should look at myself, you know? And, um, and I think a lot of people can relate to it, to that. And a lot of women can relate to that. And so I think it actually felt like a breath of fresh air for a lot of women who watch the show. And also for the men who watch the show, I think they could still like, the things they loved and enjoyed about the original or the book are still there. It's probably too reductive to put any character um, in this story into like a villain or hero box. But what's interesting for me is that, you know, I read the book when I was a teenager and, you know, I was just like fully in Rob's journey. And I, I really like, I felt I was on his side the whole time. And then rereading it later in life, I was like, Oh wait, uh, you know, you, you, when you grow with a book like this, you're just like, mm-hmm. Oh, look at all the ways in which Rob is wrong and totally off the mark, uh, mm-hmm. all over the place, you know? I mean, I think that the biggest shift for me was real. I mean, I always identified with Rob, which was one of the reasons I wanted to do this was when, when I, you know, when I saw the movie or read the book, the person who I identified with wasn't any of the girlfriends. It was the Rob character. And I think one of the biggest shifts has been kind of, I, I don't, you know, people romanticize that character a lot. And, you know, going back and reading it, he is a bit of a misogynist <laughs> and, an, and a narcissist. But I do think that's, you know, that's what the book is about. It's about a person who's stunted. So I think, when I was younger and I read the book, I think I romanticized it in a way where I was like, ooh, this person's so cool and um, and interesting. And then I think reading it later, I was like, oof, this person needs to work on themselves. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, it was really important to me if that Rob is still kind of an asshole, you know? And that's really what, because that to me, that's what the story is about. You know, I've, um, people have said to me, like, you know, how does the story work and how are you not able to get a date? You know, and people think that that's what the show's about a person who can't get a date or can't keep a relationship, but it's really about a person who's selfish. And so no one wants to be with her. <laughs> it doesn't matter, you know, what you look like. If you're not a kind person, then relationships aren't going to work, you know, and you have to eventually look at yourself. So to me, yeah, Rob just kind of being a selfish piece of shit is, was the most interesting thing about the character. There's also a moment that I that I just like 
my jaw dropped when I saw this. Um, I forget which episode it is, but you know, Rob is just, she's had, she's had sex with a musician. She's just like really feeling herself. You get like a little bit of nudity, but it's like, it's such an empowering bit of nudity. You know what I mean? Where it's just like Rob feeling herself and in control. And I, I feel like it's a kind of nudity on TV that we don't get very often for women. Mm -hmm. It's not exploitative. It's not objectifying her. It's like, this is just her relaxed and calm and happy and like really feeling herself. You know what I mean? Yeah. That felt really important to me. Just, um, again, trying to make the story feel as honest as possible, you know, and having her, having Rob in the bath or having Rob, you know, after a one night stand, it's more interesting to see her naked in that moment instead of like when she's in bed with a person, you know what I mean? I think that's like, it's just so raw and honest and vulnerable. And the thing I love about that moment is that she's, you know, Rob is topless. She's walking around feeling all cool, putting on sunglasses. And then the guy walks in and she's totally embarrassed and vulnerable and naked, you know, like it's so funny to me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so moments like that are just, um, they just, they just feel so they hit home for me. You know, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to a moment like that. In your capacity as executive producer and and wanting to be as faithful to, you know, the original story as possible, were there any, you know, fights that you won that you're particularly proud about, things you insisted on that you're so glad made it through? Um, Well, one, moving it from L.A. to New York. I'm really happy we did that. (laughs) In the original script, the character's name was not Rob. It was Alex, and that really bummed me out. I think it was... I think the the writers felt like, I don't know, maybe it was just like too close to home or it's so weird to have a girl named Rob. I'm not really sure, but um, that felt really important to me. Also, I mean, this kind of goes back to what we talked about already, but just keeping her really edgy and kind of, you know, kind of an asshole. I remember um, there's been, there's a few moments in the, in the story where, you know, where she finds out that her ex is dating a girl named Lily and she turns the corner and says, what fucking Lily girl, which is from the book and also in the film. And um, I, I remember someone giving me a note like, Ooh, can, can you do that a little bit less angry? And the whole point is that it's violently angry. That's the, what makes it so funny, you know? And I don't know if I was a man, you'd be asking me to do that. And, you know, moments like that, there's another moment that involves Lily where, you know, you, uh, I'm, you're in Rob's head and she's fantasizing about, kind of wanting to beat the shit out of Lily and getting a note of it's too violent, you know? And I'm like, no, it needs to be this violent because that's what she's picturing in, in, in her head. That's in the moment she wants to rip her fucking head off. She wants to call her a bitch and spit on her, you know, it's in her head, you know, let's, let's not be afraid to go to an uncomfortable place. Um, and again, I think that's where the comedy is, but moments like that, um, I felt very protective over. You're like, if John Cusack gets to drop an air conditioner or cash register or whatever on Tim Robbins, I can can do that. Exactly. Exactly. I want to ask you also, uh, you know, briefly about Big Little Lies. Um, I, it's my understanding that the ending of season two is changed to sort of like leave the door open for a season three in a more, um, you know, leaving the door open kind of way. (laughs) What, what? What, what are your thoughts on on those changes and, and the idea of continuing Bonnie's story? There was a big thing that got changed. There was someone that was supposed to die, but it wasn't me. But I don't want. I don't. I don't know what I'm allowed to say. So I'm, I don't know. But um, someone did die. But I think you know the way we ended the season was obviously really intriguing. But also um, everyone got to come together, and I think that felt important to everybody because I think that was one of the most powerful things about the end of season one is, you know, these women and there's, you know, our stories are all quite separate, but kind of finally coming together at the end. Um, so I think that was the reason we went in the direction that we did, but I, you know, I would love to do another season. I love that show. I love those people. Um, and I love the response. I love how, how passionate people are about that show. It's, you know, it makes, it makes going to work so much better when you know that people are, um, you know, rooting for you and excited for the thing that you're working on. Speaking of, obviously, people are really excited about uh, Batman. Um, I know that I know that you like someone will assassinate you if you say anything um, about that project. I'm not <laughs> There's a guy standing out my window right now telling me to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to trying to get you got or anything, but um, 
I know that the production is put on hold yeah. um, because of everything that's going on. So th- this is my question. Hopefully this is something you can answer. Um, I know that when you when one does a, a comic book slash superhero movie, there's a lot of intensive physical training involved to get you in shape to, you know, be Catwoman. Does that mean you have to maintain your Catwoman like training all through Corona quarantine. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't, I don't have to, it's not like the studio called and said, you know, don't get fat bitch, but, um, (laughs) but, but I had been, you know, training now for maybe, you know, four or five months. And the first week that, you know, the first couple weeks that, you know, I was self quarantined. I was like, I, I remember texting the director. I texted Matt and I was like, we might have to make the cat suit a few sizes bigger when this is over. <laughs> um, so I quickly decided to get my shit together, and um, and I've been working out virtually with my trainer David Higgins um, five days a week, and that's actually it's actually been really great because it's been giving me some kind of structure because I do it at the same time, and and then it also makes the the weekends feel like a weekend because something I don't work out on the weekends, and it gives me like just. Oh, it's a different kind of a day. So it's actually been really great just for my <laughs> mental health. <laughs> um, and I'm, you know, I'm really kind of food's kind of the only thing that I have bringing, you know, food and wine bringing me joy right now. So, um, so I'm definitely eating whatever the fuck I want. But, um, but yeah, trying to stay in decent shape so it doesn't. I don't have to start from scratch. <laughs> food, food, wine, and Fiona Apple will get us uh, through uh, quarantine. Yeah. That does it for this week's episode. We'll be back next week. The poll uh, for next week's rewatch is ongoing as we record this, but though by the time you hear this, there will be a winner. Uh, right now, it's a pretty neck and neck between Network and Aaron Brockovich. Since we are revisiting Best Actress winners, um, we're going to go category by category for the next couple of weeks um, just to have a way to change it up. So um, go follow us on Twitter at Little Goldman, uh, where you can vote on the next poll. The, this one will be closed by then and catch up with everything that we're up to. Uh, you can find us on VanityFair.com, as always, of course. Uh, and you can find us on Twitter on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Richard. Rylaws. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the least gratuitous thing that Mike Hogan told us to say about him in his absence goes to Joanna Robinson. His hair is is incredible. 